All authority, part three, the hypocrites. Some of you are like, well, he's suiting. It's suiting that he's up there on the hypocrites week. You know, I've actually never known the church without hypocrites. And I don't know if this is a grace of God or, or what. I was about 10 years old, my home church, and they made a public announcement. I think it was my dad who made the announcement. And they said, the, the preacher's not coming back. And that was about all they said. Everybody's a little confused about what's going on. A few people seem to know, but I'm like a 10-year-old kid. I have no idea what's happening. One of my buddies, he's an older guy. He's 11, I think. He's got somehow, I think, this is my memory of it. He has a cutout of the local newspaper. And there's my preacher's name in the headline. And that was the last we ever saw my preacher when I was a kid. He was imprisoned for sexual abuse of children. Now, I've never known the church to be a place without hypocrisy. It's always been a place of hypocrisy. I had this older man who was a, a friend when I was a kid. I would go to church, and we had a secret handshake. His name was Harlan. He had a nickname for me. Apparently, there was some old show where Smith and Jones were characters, and so he always called me Jones, even though my name was Smith. <laughs> Secret handshake, nicknames. He, he wanted to see me every week, and he, he made me felt seen every week. And then one week, another announcement that he was never coming back. He had left his wife and his children for his mistress, and he was having an affair. When... I grew up in a fairly small church, a couple hundred people, and if I recall, there were seven different men who left their families because of secret sin. And then in terms of my ministry, I've also just always seen hypocrisy. I've had professors, I've had mentors, I've had friends who have the mantle of authority and a veneer of piety, but underneath, there's just deadly poison and sin. And eventually it's exposed, and it just, at some point, it's not even surprising anymore. I've gone through phases of my life where I was more surprised to find out someone had integrity than that they didn't. I just expected it. I've been in ministry half my life. I started preaching weekly when I was 18. I'm... 36 now, and I have not experienced hardship and slander and wounds and just pain as I have from the church. And I myself am a hypocrite. If you start preaching weekly at 18, there's no way you have it figured out and that you have a life of integrity. There's just no way. And certainly for me, I didn't. To stand, if, if hypocrisy is about standing in front of people and saying one thing and actually not being able to live up to that standard on your own, I'm still there. And if hypocrisy is about like having special authority in one place and just secret sin in other places, I've, I've, I'm there still. My family sees most of my shadows, but even they don't fully see kind of the brokenness that's in me. And, and yet I'm here. And the reason that I'm here, and the reason that I think I still can stand before God and before you, is because along the way I met someone named Jesus. And so today I want to I want to continue our conversation on authority, really through the lens of integrity. So we talked about authenticity and, and authority, how none of us really want anyone on the outside to tell us what to do. We want to be our own authority. We're cynical. I'm cynical. We're all cynical of institutional authority. But at some point, we're also cynical of our own authority, and we need someone who comes outside of us to step in with authority to actually fix what's broken in the world and broken in me. 
And that man is named Jesus. We, we met him a few weeks ago at the beginning of the series, and he claims unsettling authority, but then he backs it up. He's not just saying that you get to answer to me, and I'm the judge of all the earth, and I'm God in the flesh. He starts showing his authority over sickness and evil spirits and devastating storms and even sin. He claims it, and then he backs it up. And this is really good news for us because we need somebody from the outside to come fix what's broken inside, inside us and inside our world. In part two, we looked at, really, it was the, the tension between authority and vulnerability. It's that most of us, we want some measure of authority, some capacity for action, and so we run away from risk. But the truest version of flourishing is when we step into risk, we step down into sacrifice. And so if you want true authority, the way of the kingdom, the way of the king himself shows that true flourishing is both vulnerability with authority. The son of man did not come to be, ser to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so today is part three where we look at the tension between integrity and authority. Integrity and authority. So let's explore some of this tension culturally, and then we'll look into the text and explore what Jesus has to say about it. And then mostly I just want to draw us to Jesus, because if there's a problem of hypocrisy in the church, there's only one solution. I want to introduce this idea that I got from a book called The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. He has this concept that he calls pseudo-transformation. It's pretty straightforward. It's not real transformation. It's pseudo-transformation. And he says, Christian, religious people have a tendency to pseudo-transformation all the time. It's almost inescapable, he says, that we'll go into pseudo-transformation. He says, it's because we know that we're supposed to be different. And we realize that we're, in very few ways, actually different. And so we find, we manufacture other ways of being different. It's pseudo-transformation. Let me show you I'm a Christian without actually having the character of Christ. Let, let me show you my spiritual life without having the fruit of the Spirit. It's pseudo-transformation. He says there's really two, two kind of criteria for this. He calls them boundary markers. He says they're highly visible. You can see them really, they're obvious. And they're relatively superficial. So they don't actually go very deep. The heart doesn't actually change. Deep transformation? No, pseudo-transformation. I think there's really two components where we see this in the church. Pseudo-transformation, if they're highly visible, relatively superficial, it is especially when churches, they start going beyond what the Bible says, and they say, you have to do this, this, and this, with no book, chapter, verse, and we see this all the time. But the other way we see it is really, I think, in, when it comes to failures of, failures of authority. The first marker is where it goes beyond the Bible, and the second is where visibility is more important than integrity. And so this is my definition for this morning for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy values visibility over integrity. Can you say the bold for me? Hypocrisy values over visibility, what's seen on the outside. It's external, it's superficial, over integrity. So integrity is this idea of being, if you have like a, an integer, it's a whole number in math. It's whole, it's the same. It's just, it's not, it can't be broken down. So integrity is where you're the same at any depth of your person in any place where you're at. But hypocrisy is where you value visibility over integrity, visibility over integrity. One of my favorite comedians is a guy named Nate Bargatze. He's from Old Hickory, Tennessee. He was talking about his parents. He said, my parents became Christians before I was born. He's like, they're still Christians, but I got them when they were the most Christian. I got the 80s and 90s Christian parent version. And he says, you cannot be more Christian than the 80s and 90s parent Christian version. He said, I think Jesus had more fun than I did. <laughs> it's just like, there, there's something about this era that if you're an adult today, maybe not under 25, but basically if you're over 25, you have experienced a great transformation that's happened in our cultural landscape, where you have probably seen a version of cultural hypocrisy that was very religious now be exchanged for a new ver version of cultural hypocrisy that's very non-religious. So that's really what I want to explore for just a 
just a few minutes, and then we'll dive into what Jesus has to say about hypocrisy. So, visibility more than integrity. Think 80s and 90s. Think church lady, Dana Carvey on SNL. These are all dated references, so some of you who are, you don't know what I'm talking about. All right, think dress codes. Um, When I was a kid, we couldn't wear shorts to church. Except sometimes you could, just not to big church, right? We start then delineating which rules apply at which time. Titles are really important. In the church I grew up in, it was really important to not, for ministry staff to not call themselves certain things. Those were off limits. These are very visible but superficial. What really matters. Remember when I got to college, there's this small church. There was this elder who just smelled like cigarette smoke. And I was like, is this possible? Is, is this even possible that a Christian person could smoke cigarettes? It just didn't go together to me. Uh, John Ortberg, in his book, he actually talks about this. He says the senior pastor could have been consumed with pride and resentment, but as long as his, as his preaching was orthodox and the church was growing, his job would not be in jeopardy. But if some Sunday morning he'd been smoking a cigarette while greeting people after the service, he wouldn't have been around for the evening service. Why? No one at the church would have said smoking a single camel was worse a sin than a life consumed with pride and resentment. But for us, cigarette smoking became an identity marker. It was one of the ways we were able to tell the sheep from the goats. It was this pseudo-transformation. And you can probably think of a dozen, right, that are a little funny. Of There's like, these are weird rules. And it's hard to find them in the scriptures too. Jesus declared all eating and drinking. He declared all foods clean. My church didn't get the memo. There were some things that you should not eat or drink. It, there's just all sorts of these things, worship styles. When it comes to like a scientific reading, of, we're just going beyond what the text actually says, and we're imposing our new rules or our own interpretations. When I was in college, uh, I was at a Bible call. I won't say which one, although if you know me, you probably know which one. Um, and it was a so Christian Bible college. And there was this late night, like, on-campus TV station called TV40, which, if you went to this college, now you know exactly which one I'm talking about. But, and it's just, like, student productions, really low quality. This is almost pre-YouTube, but there was this TV show one night, and they were doing this little skit, almost like an SNL skit, but with, you know, college Bible majors. And they, they were, <laughs> yeah, it sounds really good when I sell it like that. They went to the Bible building where the, all the Bible classes happen. And at the time, everyone had like a little key card to access buildings after hours. And the guy, he had his NIV Bible. And he walked up to the, the door and he scanned his NIV Bible. And you, you heard the sound of like the rejected key. And he says, ah, oh, the NIV, it can't get you anywhere. <laughs> and all, all my friends were just laughing. And they're like, but seriously. <laughs> There's just all kinds of things that like get added on to Christ and Christianity that are, are like way more Christian somehow than Christ. And of course now we've seen where like the, the religious right is like co-opting political parties. And so it feels and seems to a lot of people in our culture like you have to wear this and say this and not do that. And at least don't let anyone know you're doing this. And and you have to vote a certain way and be a part of a particular party. You have to think this and do this. And most of us are just over it. We don't want it anymore. Because hypocrisy is what values visibility over integrity. And if it's just like you shouldn't do these external things, there has to be something deeper. And if there's not something deeper and my life's just the secret, and then I'm, I don't have the integrity anyway. So, <laughs> it, it seems to me that not only does hypocrisy value visibility over integrity, but hypocrisy ends up ruining legitimacy. Legitimacy is where, like, when, when hypocrisy infects authority, it ruins legitimacy. You just don't have any standing to be in front of people if you're an authority. And so when you find out, when someone's sin is finally exposed and the heart is revealed, not just the external things, then you're like, I don't... He's, he shouldn't be here anymore. And I've seen my, my professors and my mentors and my friends in ministry be disqualified from ministry. And if I named names, 
Some of them, you would know their first names, but you would think, well, which one was that? Was it this one, or was it this one, or was it this one? Because we just know so many where hypocrisy has ruined their legitimacy as, as leaders. But there's this other thing. It doesn't just ruin the legitimacy of a leader. It ruins the legitimacy of the church. And so this, this month, I've been diving into Matthew 23, which is a devastating critique of religious authority. Now, it's been a mirror for my life and my own integrity and what's important to me. But I know that even though you may not have the religious authority in this community or some other one, I know that the failures of religious authorities still are undermining the legitimacy of the church, and you're still here today for a reason. And so I think it's important to just name some of these ways that it, it ruins legitimacy. Many people, we sometimes call it deconstruct. Deconstruct is where you just kind of take something apart. It's not totally destroy. Deconstruction, though, it's got to have a reconstruction for it to be helpful. And so a lot of people are in this season of deconstruction because you grew up in a church context that had all these extra things that you can't find in the scriptures, or it had these weird rules that applied here and not over here. And you're trying to figure out, where can I just have a secure foundation? And some of you, you trusted in leaders. Now, this is the grace of never being in a church without hypocrisy, is that you come to realize as a child even that my hope is not in that guy or in that guy or in that guy or in that guy and on down the list, but my hope is in someone who can actually be a foundation that is secure and steadfast. So it seems to me that there are two options that we have before us, and I'm calling these the way of the Pharisee. There's an old familiar story that's just there. It's probably in your past, if not generationally back, probably in your memory where you can choose the way of the Pharisee. Here's what I mean by Pharisee. Pharisees were first century, in, in Jesus' world, they're first century people who really cared about God and they cared about holiness and they cared about the scriptures. And what they did was they said, if the Lord is going to bless his people, we need every home to be like the temple. And so we're going to impose the standard of priests and Levites on every man and woman. We're going to make it a little extra hard. We're going to create some new rules so that everyone is doing, we're going to go a little beyond what God said, but it's for a good purpose. And we're going to show everyone, we're going to impose this through shame and through external visibilities. And I think we have two pharisaical stories on offer for us. The first one's the old familiar one. It's the religious one. It's church. You can find, you can find a, a Christian life where visibility matters more than integrity. Where instead of actually going into deep transformation, you pursue a pseudo-transformation. You can find a church and you can thrive in a church where what really matters, you just say all the same things that you've always said, and you don't do all the things that you've never done. And as long as you know that they're on the outside and that you're on the inside, you can feel good about it. But I think most of us are done with that story. And so then culturally, there's this wave that's happened where there's a brand new story, a brand new way of, of being a Pharisee. There's this new secular story. And so instead of a religious story, it claims to be non-religious, but still has all the features of religion. It still has, when, whenever I talk to church people today, they no longer sound like the church lady from Dana Carvey. But there are people who do. There are people who enforce what you can say and what you can't say, how you should think and how you should vote. There's, there's this version of like on the right, politically, where it's like Christian nationalism and whiteness is really important. And then there's this version on the progressive left where like racial dynamics and sexual identities are the most important. And in both groups and both political secular stories are offering the way of the Pharisee. Where here's all these extra rules that you have to comply by. And if you think you can't comply by them, that actually doesn't matter. What matters is that you post on social media about it. We call it virtue signaling. We live in the age of the image, 
And so instead of the actual deep integrity, a life of justice and mercy and faithfulness, all that matters is you're externalizing it, that you're talking about it, that you're posting about it. Jesus may have talked about whitewashing, but today writers are talking about greenwashing, where you just, you just try to signal that you're on the right side of things all the time. And this is the way of the Pharisee. I, I, I'm just totally convinced that there's an old story of Pharisee that we want to reject, and it seems like the only, only other alternative is a secular story where you can be just as pharisaical. John Mark Comer uh, had an excellent podcast series called This Cultural Moment, and he says this, the Pharisees of post-Christian culture, they say it, they're the judgmental, they're angry, self-righteous, puritanical. If you step out of line, if you say the wrong thing, if you believe the wrong thing, you are jumped on. But how you live, whatever, nobody really cares. But if you stand for the wrong thing or vote for the wrong thing, you're evil. He says that's the worst of 1980s Christian fundamentalism. We don't want that story either. Is there something that will go to the heart? Is there some way for someone to actually rescue us from the hypocrisy in us and the hypocrisy in our communities and maybe even the hypocrisy in our politics? You came to the right place. <laughs> There's a third way, of course. And it's the, the way of Jesus. You see, when we meet Jesus, there's no one more critical of Pharisees than him. He may have even been a Pharisee, some scholars think. But there's nobody more confrontational to hypocrisy than Jesus of Nazareth. And so he gives a totally different way where integrity, the heart, is what matters integrity over visibility. And he says, this integrity is where you find true legitimacy. I want to introduce you to this Jesus in some of his most stern, difficult texts that you will ever read. We're going to look at Matthew 23 in the Coffee House Bible. It's page 849. In Matthew 23, some people say, like, you love Sermon on the Mount? They say, this is the counter to everything you love about Jesus. One scholar calls this the unloveliest chapter in all of the Gospels. And so instead of hiding it and just preaching a few verses that will sound really good, I'm chosen to just cover every verse because there may be no, not be another time for a long time where you hear these words of Jesus. And I think not only do religious authorities like me need to hear these words of Jesus, but I think people who are considering which path to take in a world full of hypocrites. We need to hear these words of Jesus too. But because we're covering every verse, you'll see it, it's a long chapter. It means we have to move pretty quickly through these. And so there's gonna be some moments where you wish I would just camp out for 15 minutes. We just can't, we have to keep moving pretty quickly, all right? So Matthew 23, let's dive in. What he does first is he, he shows well, really, it's the continuation of everything else in Matthew about authority. We, we're three parts in. He has this whole ministry of authority. One scholar, he says, this is like the key word for understanding Jesus, according to Matthew. It's authority. When he's on the way to Jerusalem, he's talking about authority. Finally, today, he arrives in Jerusalem, and what is the first thing he does? He has questions about authority. Take a look at chapter 21. He's asked this question, by what authority do you do these things? It's a question of authority. It's this confrontation of the authority of Jesus with the authorities of his world. And in chapter 22, he says, I am the true king. I am the son of God. I am the Christ. And so then in chapter 23, which is our text today, Jesus lays out this unloveliest chapter of all the gospel. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, he says, they sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat is like a literal seat of authority almost like a, a judge's bench. It's a seat of authority in the local synagogues. He says, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't overturn authority. He still commands his people to submit to authority. Even, even hypocritical authority, he says, you, you have to do what they say, but don't do what they do. Why? Because they do not practice what they preach. Did you know you were quoting Jesus whenever you said, practice what you preach? That's, that's him. He came up with that. They do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome 
loads. Do you remember, pseudo-transformation almost always goes beyond the Bible and the requirements of God, and it adds these weird extra things on the side. That's what they're doing. They, they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You remember the words of Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. He describes his yoke, his burden is easy and light. A yoke is where you're yoked to another animal and somebody else is helping to carry the load. He says, these teachers are different. They're loading more on and they won't lift a finger to help you. Everything they do is done for people to see. Remember the two dimensions of pseudo-transformation. There's extra things that aren't biblical and then the extra things are all visible, about visibility over integrity. So here's six things they do. First, they make their phylacteries wide. You're like, phylacteries, what? These are like religious charms. Uh, they, they're literally little scripture boxes where, like the words of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema would be. And so they make them a little bigger. Now, the Old Testament actually says to have phylacteries. It's like you're supposed to hang scripture around you as a reminder. But you want to show people a little how holy you are a little more? He says, make them a little bigger. Make them a little more visible. Now, obviously, today, we don't do phylacteries. If you're in a Jewish community, you might see those. But religious charms, I'm, I remember when those WWJD bracelets came out, and I was like, it, it might be helpful, but all my friends have it. I've got to. I've got to show who I really am here. And they, they make their tassels on their garments long. It's not just about jewelry. It's also about clothing. Your clothing can signify that you're a religious person. This is, to me, one of the ironies of really conservative religious groups that have like very conservative clothing, you know what I'm describing, is that they actually draw so much attention to themselves in an effort to be modest that they undermine the modesty that's supposed to be there. They love the places of honor at banquets and for the most important seats in the synagogues. One scholar calls this greatnessism where you just want to be seen, you want to be noticed, you want to be somebody in every place that you're at. Fifth, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And then last one, they want to be called rabbi by others. Rabbi is an ancient way of saying the great one. It's a weird nickname to want. The great one? You just want to be the great one? But Jesus has a different way. He says, this is the false way of hypocrisy, of extra and extra visibility. But look at what Jesus says. But you are not to be called great one or rabbi. You have one teacher. You already have a rabbi. And you're all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father. How, how ironic is it that there are large church communities where their religious leaders are called father despite this text? He says, you have a father, and he's in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors. Some translations call this leaders. It's tough to translate. For you have one instructor, the Messiah. He's like, you're, you're doing all this effort to just show that you're somebody, when in fact your somebodiness is because of who your dad is, <laughs> your father in heaven. He's the one who makes you somebody, not your little vain efforts to have these glorious titles. Only he can make you great, and he has already done it in the Messiah. You don't need all of this. But what comes next, he's going to give his like, essential summary that's all the way through the Gospels, and then he's going to give seven woes of critique. Look at the, the summary. You'll, this will be familiar. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he introduces these woes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He's going to say this six times. He has these woes. Woes, it, it has this idea, scholars say, of wrath but sadness and grief. Some people think that Jesus is embodying in this prophetic way the lament of like a, a funeral mourner. In, in the ancient world, a lot of times, people would, would collect mourners at, at their funerals in order to show and to publicly show their grief. 
And here Jesus is wailing and weeping on behalf of the city of Jerusalem and its leaders. Woe. There's condemnation, but care and concern at the same time. Woe to you, you hypocrites. Hypocrite is this visibility over integrity. And he's saying you're, you're just play acting. It, it's actually this idea of you're making theater. You're making theater. It's, this is what actors do. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't let them in. There are synagogue leaders in the first century who, when they hear that people are following Jesus the Messiah, they kick them out. And he says, you yourselves do, do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. You remember in the book of Acts, whenever Paul goes around doing his missionary journeys, very often right behind Paul, as he's preaching gospel to all nations and grace even to the Gentiles, he wants to create a multi-ethnic family of Jews and Gentiles, not just Judeans, but he wants Syrians, he wants Europeans, he wants Africans, and everywhere right behind him come the Pharisees. They travel over land and sea, and he says, and then when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Remember the unloveliest chapter, <laughs> a child of hell. Do you remember this word hell? Every time we come to it, I think it's worth saying. Hell refers to a location in Jerusalem, Gehenna. That's the Greek word here. Gehenna refers to the hills on the south side of the city where there's this long history of really just awful, sinful practices, including child sacrifice to the gods of Molech. He says, when you block out the Messiah, you give yourself over to the evil demonic powers that offer your children. He says, you're just leading people down into that dump and that trash heap that, that place of devastation and memory. Woe to you, blind guides. In this woe, he keeps repeating this idea of blindness. Let's look at what he means by it. He says, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. So what he's really saying is like, you're inventing new readings of scripture. That's not even in the Bible. Where did you get that? You, you think you can distinguish between the temple and the gold of the temple. He's like, you're just blind. You're seeing things that aren't actually there, and then you're imposing them on other people. Have you ever seen any Christians who do the same thing? All the time. There's so many readings and rules and different things that he's like, that's not even here. You're going beyond Scripture. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that. Now, these are clearly like not relevant temptations for us today. But I think the heart of it is absolutely there where you see things that aren't actually there in Scripture. And then you impose those. And he says, when you see things that aren't there, you're actually blind. So, you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it. And by the one who dwells in it, this is a big issue in the day, just bear with me. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. He says, the words of scripture and the person of God are actually what's most important and you're going far beyond them. Let me share just a quotation from Frederick Bruner in his. He says, they are blind because in their complicated interpretations, they see so much more in the Bible than the obvious. Whenever we teachers claim to know the innermost mind of God on the basis of anything other than the clear and uncomplicated interpretation of clear and uncom uncomplicated text of Scripture, we can be sure we're in the presence of false teaching. What's false teaching? It's when you see with clarity what Scripture doesn't teach with clarity. Many modern interpreters do this. Conservatives, they do it all the time where you add in things in Scripture that aren't there and then you bind those but progressives do too, or by ignoring the things that are there and acting like they're not, blindness can cut both directions. And Jesus is saying, you've got a teacher. Can you listen to him? You've got an instructor. You've got a father. We don't need you to take the place of God and to speak for him. We have God who speaks for himself. 
the fourth woe here. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth. You tithe your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. In the Old Testament, you're required to tithe like your, your harvest, your agriculture stuff. But here, they're like making pasta, and they're like sprinkling some salt in. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One for the Lord. You know, it's like, a, guys, I think you're blowing this out of proportion. Your kitchen spices? He said, that's fine. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, the weightier matters, some translations say. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Most scholars think what he's doing here is he's rewording Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What, what does God require? What does God require? He says you have to do justice, love kindness or mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You need justice, you need mercy, and you need faithfulness. Now, our, our churches are certainly filled with two out of threes. John Tyson, Church of the City in New York, he says there's so many churches that have mercy and they have this life with God, a spirituality, but they don't actually do anything. And then you have other churches that care about justice and mercy, but God is far from them. A life with God, the gospel at the center? No, it's just like a progressive vision of justice without Jesus at the center. He says some... Some churches have justice and faithfulness, but there's, there's no kindness, there's no mercy. The only way to actually be true to what Jesus is saying is you have to have all three. You have to take people where they are in mercy. You have to go to where they're at in justice, and you have to bring God and the fullness of the gospel with you when you do it. The weightier matters of the law, you've practiced the latter, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You can't pick and choose, you have to do everything the Lord says, but how easy is it to make visible more important than integrity in the center? You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. A gnat's the smallest thing that can make you unclean, and so they would put these filters on, on their cups and their drinks all through these efforts just to not become unclean. And he's like, and, and then there's this camel that you're just ignoring and swallowing whole. So woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. It looks pretty. It looks nice. It looks like outward piety. But then your affair is exposed, and you realize that you're just consumed by sexual addiction. There's this greed. Now, nobody can ever see greed. And so it doesn't strike us in the way, but Jesus says, that's just cleanliness on the outside of the cup. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will become clean. He says, you have to go from the heart and work your way out. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. About a month before Passover, they would go out and they would paint all the tombs with chalk. This was so that if you're coming in to worship in Jerusalem, you wouldn't accidentally walk over a dead corpse. Corpses made you unclean. The whole point of traveling here was to get into the temple. And if you walk over graves on your way, so they would just, it's like repainting the lines in the road just to make sure everybody's safe. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. So these are like extravagant memorials to say like, we love this guy. And yet, he says, if they were offering their critique today, how would you receive them? You say, if we'd lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. This is very much the feeling that a lot of people have every MLK weekend, where it's like we build tombs of the prophets and they celebrate, and you th everyone says, if we had lived back then, there's no way we would have participated in the injustice against him. This is the same thing. So you testify against yourselves that you're descendants of those who murdered the prophets. He says, it's this, let me see, I think one scholar, he captures this pretty well. 
He says, those of us who say, I didn't bring slaves to America and thus exculpate ourselves from our father's sins are perilously, perilously close to this woe on those who feel little personal shame for the sins of their ancestors. You see, nobody liked Amos. Nobody liked Jeremiah. Nobody liked the prophets. They killed the prophets. And he's like, and you're going to do the same thing in just a few weeks when I send you more prophets and teachers. Take a look at what he says. Go ahead then, complete what your ancestors started. Complete. It, it's actually this idea of fill it up. Fill it up to completion. You're not done yet with the murdering of prophets. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers, and some of them you will kill and crucify. Notably, Jesus is the most important here. The only way to complete and fill up something in Scripture is for it to be completed and filled up in the person of Jesus. And here, the martyrs of the prophets are filled up by Jesus. He says, you'll flog them in your synagogues. You'll pursue them from town to town. And isn't this exactly what we see in the book of Acts? He says, you say that you're so much better than the past generations, and we're about to see you repeat the sins of the past generation. Now, when it comes to generational sin and who carries responsibility, we see here that generational sins tend to be repeated. It's not that you're responsible for the sins of the past. It's that you're responsible for confessing and getting rid of the sins of the past. Because if you don't get rid of them, they will come back to bite you. They will show up in new ways with a new generation with new names and faces. It's all the same stuff, though. This is a, a big debate in our culture right now on, like, who needs to confess the sins of the past, especially when it comes to race? You'll notice that many times a year, as a church, we confess racial sin. And the reason isn't because you are guilty based on what someone else did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. The reason is that we have inherited the systems and the patterns and the structures to make those temptations plausible in our hearts. We have to confess and get rid of those things. Jesus is saying, you haven't actually done that. All you've done is built these monuments to these men that you would have killed if you were there anyway. So he says, the final woe. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, the first death in Scripture, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Now, if you're reading in the Hebrew Bible, the last book of their canon is Second Chronicles, and the last prophet murdered is Zechariah. So in English, it works from A to Z. In the Hebrew canon, it works from beginning to end. You are guilty of blood. He repeats the word blood three times here. The blood, the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the ones that you murdered between the temple and the altar. And truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When Jesus gives a double name, this is his way of saying, I love you, but, but you're off here. Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. Your house, the temple, is empty. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23, man. There's so much there. It's been a mirror for me this week. But I think absolutely what we see is that Jesus is offering a different path than the way of the Pharisee. Jesus doesn't want you to pursue religious hypocrisy or secular hypocrisy as if what only matters is the stuff on the outside. Jesus wants your heart. And Jesus can see your heart. And he knows that in our hearts we carry deep, hypocritical tensions. We carry the blood of the sins that we've committed or would commit if we were in those situations. He knows those things, and yet he offers another way. I just want to close with just a reflection on Jesus. I'm going to talk, but I hope that you'll pursue him even in your mind. 
If you, if you want, you can close your mind. You can pray. But I'm, I'm going to be talking just about Jesus for a few minutes. And I just want you, I want to invite you to let him gather you. He says, I, I want to be with you. But you have to get in the way of Jesus, not the way of the Pharisee. I'm, I'm good for it. What we see in, in this text, especially at the end, is that Jesus is the only one who actually can get us on a different path because he's the prophet. He, we need someone who has the integrity of heart, who has the wisdom, the clarity, who can speak for heaven, who can look at injustice and say it truthfully that it is wrong and I'm going to do something. We need a prophetic critique, and Jesus is the only one who has the legitimacy to actually give us the prophetic critique that we need. But Jesus is also the priest. The priest in the Old Testament is who you come to for mercy. If you want to meet God, you go through him. And you go through him and you bring blood with you. You bring life. And in this text, we see that we carry blood with us. But Jesus says, when you come to me, the blood of the righteous, the blood of Abel, the blood of Zechariah, every, every bloody consequence of sin that costs someone their life that you carry, the true priest will atone for in his own blood. He is the priest who sees the leper and restores him. He is the priest who has the woman who can just tug on his tassel and have power come out to save her. He's the true high priest who understands our weaknesses and can sympathize with us. He has compassion to know what you're going through. He has the clarity and the truth and the justice of a prophet, but he has the approachability, he has the mercy, he has the blood of the atonement to make your way back in. But the last image that we see is of a king. And the king says, I'm coming back. And he says, I'm going to come back and it's going to be fire. It's going to be hell. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a hen with her wings around his people. And I want you to be there close to me. Can I pull you in close? I've made the way for you to be pulled in where the fire will not hurt you. Isaiah says, I, I give my son in exchange for you. I give peoples in exchange for you. You are the ransom. And then we see him in Jesus. We see in, in Isaiah, he says that the flood won't consume you, that the fire won't burn you. Jesus is saying, let me put my arms around you. Let me put my wings around you. Let me gather you in because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm coming back and I'm going to make this right. Let's take a minute and just, just pray, would you? We've talked about narcissism in this series, and Jesus is the anti-narcissist. He is the prophet that was murdered to fill up the martyrs of the prophets. He is the priest who gives his own blood for the sacrifice of taking away sin. He is the king who brings injustice and rescues, and he does it by laying down his life. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, Memphis, Memphis. I have longed to show you my love. I've longed to gather you. Are you willing? In your mind, could you picture Jesus in whatever form you want, as a hen, as a mother, as a father, as a king, as a prophet, as a priest? And would you hold up your hands to him? Would you hold up your hands even in front of you now? And ask for his help and his mercy for the hypocrisy and the sin that we carry. Would you search your heart and would you name the places that you turn to, the ways of the Pharisee that are so appealing to your heart? Is it that old familiar story of religious rules going beyond scripture? just showing your holiness instead of actually pursuing him? Or is it the new secular story signaling everything that's right? 
would you share with him the ways that you turn to the Pharisee? And would you ask for his mercy? Would you name the wounds that you carry from hypocrites? From religious authorities and preachers and elders and fathers and mothers? Would you ask for his help and his mercy to put the brokenness back together? Our Father, we are not orphans. We do not need to name ourselves. You have named us. And we stand because of your grace in Jesus Christ. Our Messiah and King Jesus, you are our teacher. Your word is true. Forgive us when we go beyond. Forgive us when we fall short. And empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk in your ways. Our prophet, our priest, our king, you say to come to you for mercy and grace and to find help in our time of need, and we need your help. We come to you to be gathered, to be protected, to have our hearts transformed into a deep integrity so that this community can be a place of legitimacy where the truth of the gospel is shared, where the love of our Father is known and experienced. Jesus, where you, not the church, are the center, you, not the preacher, is the, the authority, where you are the king and the savior and the healer. Would you grant us legitimacy as your oikos? The church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Would you make it so here at Oikos Church and in Memphis to the ends of the earth? We glorify your name and the name of Jesus our King. Amen.